Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Hanging out. All of us could probably stand to do more of it, especially if it doesn't come with a calendar invite. In her new book, Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time, Sheila Liming writes that she's found herself, quote, an accidental witness to a growing crisis. People struggling to hang out or else voicing concern and anxiety about how to hang out. The coronavirus may have heightened this struggle, but its root causes predate the pandemic. Our increased obsession with our phones, the shrinking of public spaces, widening income inequality, and sheer American individualism. Sheila Liming, a professor of communications at Champlain College, joins us on the podcast to discuss both what we have to lose by not spending unstructured time together and, more importantly, how we can get it back. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today, Sheila. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So in the spirit of a hangout, I have not prepared any questions and we're just going to (laughs) chat. I love that. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally fine with that. As as you know, um, in the book, I talk a lot about improvisation as being central to hanging out. So that's fine by me. Perfect. Well, let's start with with not an improvisation or or maybe it will be <laughs> like, can you define what hanging out is? Sure. Um, in the book, I define it as daring to do not much and daring to do not much in the company of other people. And I think that's the definition that I I like the best. Um, That not much, it can be unstructured, it can be lightly structured, or I would even argue sometimes it can be highly structured. I mean, we hang out when we go to highly structured or formal events, you know, like weddings, graduation ceremonies, that kind of thing. Um, Although for much of the book, I'm talking about the more lightly structured or unstructured kind, the kind of improvisational hanging out that happens when you're just spending time with people without too much of an agenda built in. I feel like hanging out is something that we've all done to various degrees in our life, or I feel like I I hope we have. I definitely hung out more in my wayward youth than I do now. Like, why did you feel like the art of hanging out was being lost to such a degree that you wrote a whole book about it? (laughs) Um, Well, I think it's something that, you know, we grant sort of without reservation or without sanction to younger people in the world. Like, we never begrudge children their playing. Of course, they have to go to school. There are times when they have to, you know, sort of focus and do other things, too. But we view playing as really essential to what it means to be a child. You know, it's exploration, it's improvisation, and of course, it's learning, too. And then as we age, you know, I think we for the most part, you know, allow even older children, teenagers, the same kind of thing. We recognize the value of socialization for those people. And then something happens the older that we get, where hanging out starts to be viewed more and more as something bad, Um, as a waste of time, as, you know, something that spells out like a lack of productivity. Um, And I think what that turns into is... Um, an increasing lack of opportunities for hanging out as we age uh, to the point where suddenly, you know, we get to the point of midlife and we look around and be like, wow, what happened to all the hanging out I used to do? So, I mean, part of it was, yes, inspired from, you know, my own vantage point on that situation and feeling like as I've aged, I've lost opportunities for hanging out. Um, But also thinking about like what sort of ramifications that might have for our society at large, um, you know, and for the democracy that we all share and live in together, too. Well, what does hanging out have to do with democracy? 
Well, I think that democracy is um, built on the idea of cultivating care for other people. Um, and that includes care for strangers, like people who aren't necessarily even in our orbit um, or in our immediate family or in our like friend group or something like that. You know, I, I have to desire that other people around me have goods and services and access to things in the same way I would want anyone who's close to me to have access to those things. So hanging out is one sort of way that I think we engage in that cultivation of care and we practice being with each other so that we can practice caring about each other in a sort of political sense. It's interesting to me to connect these two ideas, this loss of democracy and the loss of unstructured communal time. On the one hand, I feel like so much of that loss is felt on a really personal, individualized level. Like, of course, I'm hanging out less. I have work and all these other obligations and family and hobbies and you know I want to do all this stuff that can't just unspool over hours but you know beyond those individual pressures aren't there societal forces at work here? Certainly there have been some major demographic shifts or changes that have occurred that have affected our ability to hang out and maybe even um, maybe currently affecting our ability to participate and engage in democracy as well. So in the book, I talk about things like time and the way that time has been increasingly structured. And this was something that was building before the pandemic, but increased even more, you know, coming out of the pandemic, where we now sort of um, live according to these slots that we have created for ourselves um, via digital devices, right? These calendars that keep us on track, these extra minutes that we find a way to spend online or something like that. Um, so time is one of it, but it also has to do with space. And I talk a lot about the diminishment of public space, too, and how, you know, obviously that's something that was very severely affected during the pandemic because we couldn't actually spend time in public space with each other very well. Um, but even, you know, coming out of the pandemic, how it seems that public and shared space has been getting smaller and rarer and harder to find and more prohibitive to enter into um, in terms of cost or time or investment or something like that as well. Yeah, I mean, it brings me to this Emerson quote that you have in the book, uh, where Emerson writes, the soul environs itself with friends that it may enter into a grander self-acquaintance or solitude, and it goes alone for a season that it may exalt its conversation or society. Obviously, we were alone for a lot more than a season during the pandemic. It was several <laughs> interminable seasons. But I wonder if you feel like, yes, our time and our relationship to it has changed in the wake from like of work from home, for example, or, you know, shifting even more to the Internet for things. But do you also feel like, you know, it changed in other ways, like it became more precious because we had less of it? Yeah, I mean, I felt it becoming more precious. I don't know about you, um, but I feel like, you know, um, coming out of the pandemic or even reaching a sort of more advanced and later stage of it, I suddenly found myself getting to do things again that I hadn't gotten to do for two, three years, and which previously I would have maybe taken for granted. And I mean things like sitting next to a friend on their couch or even like having a conversation with a stranger while sharing public transportation um, without necessarily like, you know, feeling like, ooh, stranger danger or I have to be masked and separate from you or something like that. Um, so yeah, I'm. 
in some ways I'm talking about very simple activities um, that may have once felt completely natural, but somehow now feel like they require a little bit more stamina or a little bit energy to like summon the ability to perform. Um, and as I was writing this book and I was talking to friends about it and everything like that, I, I kept getting this this response and conversation where a friend would say something like, I, I think I might have forgotten how to hang out with other people. Like I might have forgotten how to like just be in someone else's presence and chill and relax without necessarily feeling like, oh, I got to come up with a plan and I got to make sure that things happen here. So I love that Emerson quote. I love Ralph Waldo Emerson a lot. But one of the things I love about him and is he he really has a sense of like getting at the balance in things. Um, and, you know, even though he's also famous for writing on solitude and he's also famous on writing for like the improvement of the self, he's talking about how the improvement of the self has to exist in balance with like the improvement of social institutions and social functions and this like sense of friendship and intimacy as well. When you're talking about, you know, I've forgotten how to hang out or that like performing nature or feeling kind of like I've forgotten how to do these things and there is a script. I feel a tension there, too, because isn't hanging out all about like not performing? Isn't it about sort of relaxing, letting your guard down, sort of being just with people as yourself? It is certainly, but that doesn't mean that the performance angle goes away entirely, I think. Like consider a dinner party, for instance. I love a good dinner party. I write about dinner parties in the books, um, but think about like how performance unfurls in the context of a dinner party. Um, when you're at somebody's house who, you know, really, really um, enjoys cooking and wants to sort of like perform for their guests, or even somebody who just wants to kind of perform a certain sense of their own domesticity and like their life as they live it. Because what you do, of course, when you like enter into somebody's house for a dinner party is like you enter into that scenario that you don't normally get access to. So I think performance continues to be a part of the scenario. Ideally, of course, we want it to sometimes take a back seat so that everybody can kind of relax and improvise and also meet each other on an equal playing field. Um, sometimes I think where hanging out goes wrong is when the performance overshadows it a bit too much. I'm glad you brought up dinner parties because I am having one this Friday. I love them. They're great. Uh, I like this line that you have in the chapter about hanging out at dinner parties where you say, if we keep reminding ourselves that a dinner party can be made from three pretty humble ingredients, time, people, and food, then we likewise remember that such things are easy to get at and come by. So what makes for a good dinner party? <laughs> um. I think one of the things that makes for a good dinner party is, of course, conversation. It's a really basic ingredient. It's what a lot of people go to dinner parties for. Um, it's what I partially attend a dinner party for. Um, but conversation is not something that um, everybody feels comfortable doing all the time. It's not something that everybody excels at. And sometimes it can actually be difficult to achieve, you know, depending on the group of people that you have in the room. Um, so conversation is like the thing that I live off of in the context of a dinner party. It's what really makes those exciting opportunities for me, along with, of course, trying new food and things like that, too. Um, but I think we've all encountered those individuals who have that kind of knack for like just owning the conversation or, um, you know, directing it back towards them a little bit. Um, and of course, conversation, as even Emerson would teach us, is all about give and take. It's about listening as much as it is about volunteering and sharing information too. And, you know, when I've been at awkward or less ideal dinner parties in my life, I feel like a big factor in it has been the quality of the conversation and the ability to feel like you're participating in something versus bearing witness to and serving as an audience for somebody else.
Totally. Yeah, I think the conversation is huge and striking that balance. Like when I think about dinner parties, my problem is that I want to make them bigger than can feasibly fit around my table. Um, problem one. <laughs> but <laughs> but the the real trick, I think, is if you want to stay within a perimeter of like eight people, it's like balancing out the relationships too. you know, like figuring mm-hmm. out who has an existing relationship, who doesn't know each other. You don't want everybody well, maybe you do want everybody to be a stranger, but you also don't want like six people to know each other and then two to know nobody. So it's, I think key to that conversation is like sort of anticipating what kind of performances you can allow to take place on a certain stage if you set it right or cast it right, I guess. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and like being a shrewd reader of relationships is is what you have to do in those moments, right? Um, and I think that's that's important because like you said, like you don't want everyone to feel like they're on uncomfortable ground or foreign territory, um, but neither do you want to like single anybody out so they're the only people who feel that way. Mm-hmm. Well, so what makes a dinner party or a hangout session fail? I'm thinking like you have this whole chapter about hanging out on TV, which I thought before reading it was going to be about hanging out watching TV, which I feel like is something a lot of people do. But instead, it was it was actually you hanging out for a television show because a friend of yours in North Dakota had this cooking slash reality show on the Food Network. So what what made, I guess, those dinner parties or or hangouts fail? And what do you think that has to do in general with like why hangouts fail? I think reality TV has actually a really big effect on how we understand hanging out in contemporary culture and also can um, sometimes serve to set up expectations that don't always bear out in reality. And that can actually lead to, I don't want to say failure, it feels so harsh, but like to less successful results um, associated with something like a dinner party or a hangout session. Um, If you look at the kinds of shows that the Food Network serves us, like 24 hours a day, half of which, of course, are dedicated to competition. And we have that angle of like people trying to outdo each other. Okay, so that's something that doesn't work great at a dinner party. You don't want to like, you know, have that sense of competition overriding everything else. Um, But on top of that, too, there's so much emphasis on aesthetics, on how things look and how things have to be like a certain kind of way and how the people look and how the food looks. Never mind how it tastes because TV audiences can't experience it how it tastes anyway. So it's all about just the surfaces and how it looks. And I sometimes think that when people get overly invested in those details is where things start to go awry in hanging out. Um, For instance, like... I feel so much more relaxed when I'm in somebody's house and I feel like there's a little bit of a mess or there's a little bit of a reality to real lived experience in that house than when like everything's in its perfect place and if I touch anything or do anything wrong, I'm going to make a problem that's going to like, you know, cause issues for our hanging out. So um, I would say part of what makes hanging out fail or work out less successfully are, you know, first, um, very high expectations for how it has to go. And second, a sense of rigidity, that there is a sort of like rule book that has to be observed, whether that has to do with manners or placement or timing or scheduling or, or looks and aesthetics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting and good. And I agree with you on this one that you don't include like arguments as failures for hanging out. Um, one, because I love to argue as my friends will testify, but also because I think, you know, you point out in the last, I think it's the last chapter, like this one sort of memorable hangout session that like revolved around an argument, but went past the argument. Can you talk about that hangout and like why you wanted to include something like so basic 
in the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when you said I love to argue, I was like about to say like same. And I was <laughs> thinking like, like, do I love to argue or is it just that I find myself constantly getting into arguments? I don't know. Um, I don't know that I necessarily enjoy them, but I also view them as like a very real part of what hanging out amounts to and also like true social intimacy. Um, at some point in time, if you're good enough friends with somebody, if you're close enough to them, you're going to run into an argument of some kind or another. And it's really important to be able to navigate that moment without thinking like, well, all is lost. You know, let's let's just move on and never talk to each other again. Um, so I, I round out the book with a conclusion that I call how to hang out. And in the beginning of that, I talk about hanging out um, in a bar in Milwaukee with a friend of mine from college. And this friend of mine, we've known each other for a really long time. And I think we argue every time we see each other. Like it's it's just the way we interact. You know, he's got different views of the world than I do. And yet we of course also agree on quite a lot. We have plenty in common and that keeps us going. But I always kind of expect, you know, with him, I'm gonna have some sort of a disagreement, but rarely are they the kind of like big ones, the ones that kind of like settle in and cause discomfort on both sides. And when we were in that bar in Milwaukee, we did have kind of a big disagreement because it had to do with a fundamental difference in a point of view about how we see the world. And, you know, I realized at some point in our discussion of it that, you know, we weren't probably going to change each other's minds, but I hoped we could develop a little bit of a tolerance for the other person's point of view, even if we weren't going to necessarily like flip sides. And that's what happened. Like we, we stayed in this bar for like three hours drinking old fashions and it was really, really tense there for a while. And then like we started to come down from it and we got back to somewhere good. And then we went on with our lives and we went back to the hotel where we were staying and everything was fine. So um, at the end of that, I actually felt like I came away with this sense that he was a friend that I could trust to, you know, get into situations like that um, without necessarily feeling like he was going to just turn around and, you know, abandon me or turn his back on me or turn his back on the 15 years of friendship that we've had. Um, so in the end, I actually felt like our friendship was stronger as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about like what it takes to sort of muddle through a hangout that maybe feels uncomfortable or feels like, I, I don't know, this feels like performative or I don't know, I don't feel like I can really belong here. I let my hair down or even, you know, it doesn't feel like hanging out. It feels tense. Mm -hmm. Well, it takes patience first. And of course, patience is just a code word for time. I think when we feel like we don't have patience for other people, what we're actually saying is that we're concerned about not having time um, to be able to deal with something properly, whether it's, you know, managing somebody else's emotions or whether it's like stating our own case or whether it's just kind of like hanging out and trying to get through whatever's causing the conflict to arrive somewhere else on the other side of it. And that's why time is so important to hanging out. Um, we all know that feeling of hanging out with someone who doesn't really have time for us, someone who's kind of squeezing us in between things and that sense of impatience that comes with it, that we like kind of got to get through this and then, you know, move on to the next thing. And with regards to, you know, fights or arguments or even like points of interpersonal conflict, if you don't have time, it's going to end badly, right? Um, the same is true, I think, for adjusting to any kind of new social situation or hanging out situation that it's all about patience. Of course, in this modern world of ours, um, time is in really short supply. So we don't always have the ability to be as patient with others as we want to. So one of the things that I'm arguing for in the book is the seizing of time so that we have enough time to be patient with each other and to give each other a second chance when necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you also have this line where you talk about how like, 
uh, you know, social proximity tends to come easily when we are young, but it can start to thin out once a person reaches the open range of adulthood. And with enough time and practice, a person simply adapts, adjusting their eyes to the sparseness of their social surroundings. And that's in the context of talking about North Dakota, which, yes, is a sparse place. Can you talk more about that? Because I think a lot of a lot of times our acquiescence to like hanging out less has less to do with our desire and more to do with just the way society is set up. You know, you go to work, you go home to your nuclear family, you live alone with your partner, and then that's kind of it. Like you try to squeeze in things elsewhere. So in the book, I talk a lot about the concept of third spaces, which of course is not my idea. It's it's a concept that was pioneered by the sociologist Ray Oldenburg um, way back in the 1990s. So this is a, an idea that has been developing for a while and which he has written about in several books. Um, but third spaces are supposed to provide a kind of buffer between the first place, which is the home, and the second place, which is the site of work. Because both of those places come with responsibilities and burdens of one kind or another, even while we enjoy them. There are things that we have to do, there are people we have to be, and there are personality traits that we have to exhibit in those arenas that can be taxing to us and exhausting. So third places are you know, public or semi-public spaces that are free or cheap to enter into that exist somewhere between those two. So those are things like parks or libraries um, or coffee shops or sometimes even bars or something like that. Spaces that we can enter into and spend time in where we don't necessarily have to, you know, be thinking about the pressures of work or the pressures of home life and family and things like that. So third spaces are important because they give us a break from those responsibilities that govern the other two spaces, but also because I think that's where hanging out happens and also where our interactions with strangers and new friends and neighbors and acquaintances, those weaker ties that we sometimes have in society, that's where they really develop. Um, We have those strong ties that we're responsible for at home with our family members. And we have pretty strong ties that we're responsible for at work in a different sense when we're being, you know, monitored or evaluated or expected to be productive. But in those third spaces, it's a little bit more improvisational. And we're sort of creating our relationships with each other in the moment. So that's why they're so important. And that's why I focus on them in the book um, as a place where, you know, we can make those relationships bloom. But of course, places that are increasingly difficult to access or else just hard to make time for. Um, A lot of times when I hear people, you know, talk about like, oh, someone had plans with me and then they canceled the plans with me and now I'm so excited because secretly I'm an introvert and I never wanted to hang out in the first place. I often wonder if it's really about introversion or if it's more just about the incredible effort that sometimes comes with getting to the thing that you have decided to do with someone. You know, with um, getting out of the house, getting to that public place, maybe it's transportation or commuting or whatever. All the logistics of life that mean getting out of the first space or the second space and getting to that other place where you want to be. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about that access? Because it's not just space, right? Like, do you think hanging out is also a class issue? Yeah, um, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, I absolutely do see it as a class issue. And I think that, you know, it's pretty clear that time works differently for different sectors of, um, you know, the American population dependent on economic class. One thing I think is interesting is that time, you can tell how much it's viewed as a commodity and a resource when you think about who has access to it, right? Um, And yes, more privileged people at the top of the income ladder are going to have more time. What's also interesting, I think, is the viewpoint that we have when we view people at the bottom of the income ladder and how they spend their time. 
that it often comes with this kind of judgment that that is not a good use of your time or that is not productive time or that is wasting time. Um, and I think of this with the way that um, lower income people tend to inhabit public space and the views that get placed upon that public space as a result, right? That this is a place where, you know, time is being wasted and thus not a, not a space that's appropriate for other people at other levels of the ladder. Um, but I actually, I talk a lot in the book about, you know, of course, the diminishment of public space and some of the examples that I use particularly relate to the middle class in America. And I, I think that middle class people in America are kind of squeezed between these two senses of pressure, trying to work hard enough to win extra time for themselves, but also living in fear of being viewed as non-productive and wasteful, like people who would be viewed at the bottom of the ladder. So there's the sense of like trying to create more time for oneself while also being afraid of the extra time that one has. It's this kind of double bind that, we're exi that we exist in in the middle. And of course, the classic middle class housing arrangement, which is the suburbs, only makes that worse because the suburbs are all about separation um, from things, making it so you have to spend more time to get to work or more time to get to the grocery store or a civic center or anything like that. Well, I love that you brought up productivity and the idea that time you're, you know, spending hanging out on a park bench, like drinking with your friends or hanging out at home is unproductive if you're not producing anything. But I wonder if you could sort of reframe that for us. I mean, it seems to me really productive to sort of <laughs> steal that word. <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, in the book, I talk a lot about how, you know, hanging out is viewed with some suspicion because it's it's seen, I think, by many as being not productive in an economic sense. And so I talk about, you know, um, the ways in which that is sort of true. One of the great things about hanging out is like, yeah, you're not subject to the burdens of having to produce and make money while you're doing it. But I actually think that hanging out itself is productive, even in an economic sense. For instance, like the way that we produce our relationships when we're hanging out and how that can have an actually beneficial economic impact. As an example, um, just this past weekend, I was talking to a former student of mine, um, a girl who graduated several years ago from the University of North Dakota, where I used to work, and then went on to get a graduate degree, etc. And she works in publishing now. And the last time I had checked in with her, which was about two years ago, she really hated her job, right? She was talking about how she like constantly looking for another job. And I saw her this past weekend and I said, well, how's the job going? And she said, oh, actually, it's so much better than it used to be because I made a friend at work. And so now I have this friend and I feel like I have an attachment to the job I'm doing during the day and I'm way happier, I'm less miserable, and I'm not constantly thinking about applying for other jobs, which has economic you know, ramifications, right? Because the time that we spend not having to train new workers or not having to make up for one worker leaving and another one coming in um, is important time uh, to economic productivity itself. And turns out that can be cultivated through hanging out as well. <laughs> Yeah, that is definitely true. And, you know, I think a lot of your point of view about hanging out is is through the lens of music. Um, you, you've mentioned mm -hmm. improvisation. There's, of course, jazz improvisation, but also um, just like, you know, being in a jam band, which you spent much of your 20s doing. Um, and I, I think like when I was thinking of sort of hanging out as being productive, that's kind of what I was thinking of, too, is like how it takes a lot of hanging out in a setting with other people to like build something that feels meaningful, whether that's like a rapport that lets you jam out successfully or whether it's like a relationship that makes you want to keep reaching out to somebody. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you used the word rapport because I think that's like a really important part of it. Um, I think of these jam sessions that I used to go to. These were like held at a bar when I was in my early 20s. And they happened on Monday nights, which is like the worst night of the week to try to get out of your house and do something. But I remember like talking to one of my roommates at the time. I'm like, I have to go because I'm trying to build rapport. Like I'm trying to create a, you know, a kind of ongoing social system that I'm going to be able to, you know, benefit from and also like make my life a little bit easier later down the line and that's exactly what happens with music right um when you hang out by yourself as a musician and work on your music you're practicing um you're working on your technique you're working on your skill when you hang out with other musicians it's a little bit different you're still you know working on technique and skill but one of the things you're also doing is you're trying to figure out the social terrain of the music itself where one person can enter and where another person has to kind of hang back a little bit there's a lot of give and take that goes into creating a work of music if you want to perform it or record it or even just creating the relationships that will allow you to do that more effortlessly in the future so that the next time you see each other and the next time you play with each other you can take new risks you can try new things you know that that terror that i used to feel when somebody was like now let's experiment is actually pretty low stakes terror because like what's the worst that's going to happen you'll play a few wrong notes and then next time around, you're just going to have to like try something different. And it's, it's pretty, it's pretty friendly failure in the end. Um, because you know, other people who are playing there with you, they want you to succeed and they want you to have a good time. Um, at least that's what I found to be generally true. So invite people to do things. Maybe they'll say no, maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't, but that's okay. Um, give it a shot. And you know, while you're at it, take your headphones off every now and then and have a conversation with a stranger. We have links in the show notes to Sheila Liming's new book, Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time, which, although I read it by myself, really did inspire me to hang out more this month. We've also got links to Liming's jammier endeavors, like her band, and some other links about the things we talked about, like the 15-minute city. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs> <laughs>